Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We're in Ephesians chapter 6, and it's Sundays like this one that I sorely wish we were a purely seeker-sensitive church. Like we frolicked through our Bibles, picking out tweetable passages that we could share to encourage one another and go home and be happy about ourselves. If you are committed to walking through a book of the Bible, line by line, verse by verse, you are going to step in something. You're going to get your feet dirty. And today is one of those passages. We've been talking about the Christian home, the roles of all those involved in the Christian home. And today, within those instructions, we arrive at Christian slaves or servants under Christian masters in Christian households. And to our 21st century American ears, this sounds like an oxymoron. And it should. So today we're going to read this passage. We're going to talk a little bit about slavery in America and slavery in Paul's day. And we're going to understand its relevance for all of us today. I'm going to read for us uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray together. Father, a passage like this touches every single one of us in a very different way, depending on which side we stand in our history, in our genealogy, in our experience, in how we face prejudice today and think about prejudice today. Um, But we trust that your Holy Spirit doesn't transcend our experience but moves into our experience and will use it to mold us and shape us into the image of your Son. We want that, Lord Jesus. Do that in our midst, we ask in his name. Amen. Friends, obviously, this is a very tough tough passage because even just the words slave and master put its finger on one of the darkest, most wicked, grievous chapters in our nation's history. We are still limping from that today. So it is shocking to us and to our ears when we hear the Apostle Paul actually giving instructions for slaves to turn around and obey their masters. It's okay that we feel that way. With our history, we should bristle. We should feel uncomfortable with this passage. This is incredibly awkward. We need to understand a little bit that slavery in Paul's day was very different than slavery in our nation, and we'll talk about that. 
But before we even get there, we need to understand that the Bible categorically condemns slavery as it was practiced in America outright. I want to give us three reasons why we know that the Bible condemns the slavery our nation practiced. Okay? Number one, the Bible condemns kidnapping or abducting another person. Categorically, that is wrong according to Scripture. We know that the entire system of slavery in America, as it was practiced here, was built on kidnapping, abducting slaves from Africa. You've got Africans and Arabs and Europeans and Americans who have their hands dirty in kidnapping and enslaving. And Scripture says, in more than these two places, that's wicked, that's wrong, that's sinful. One of those places is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul lists sins that he says, among them are murderers or those who are enslavers, those who kidnap someone and sell them into slavery. Those kind of people have nothing to do with God and his gospel. That's what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Exodus chapter 21 verse 16 says, this is right on the heels of the Ten Commandments, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. If you lived in Israel, if you lived in the visible kingdom of God and you participated in any way in the slave trade, whether you were the one to actually kidnap someone or you simply bought someone who was kidnapped, you would deserve the death penalty. Our entire system of slavery in America stands outright condemned on that point alone. It doesn't matter if you know about a situation where there was a good relationship between a master and slave in America. It doesn't matter if the transatlantic slave trade began to dwindle in the 1800s and then what we were practicing largely in the 19th century was selling those who had already been taken and already sold. The Bible says it is wicked. It has nothing to do with God and his gospel. And if you had lived in the visible kingdom of God in Israel in the days of Exodus you would be put to death. This is anathema to God and his scripture. Number two, the second reason is that the Bible categorically condemns treating a person as less than a person. We know this is true from our Bibles. We know when we read about creation in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that we are made in God's image. We bear the rights and privileges of those who show and show forth the dignity of bearing the image of God. Woe to the person or the institution or the corporation or the sweatshop or the migrant farm or the slave trade that treats a person as less than a person. When we withhold basic rights, when someone has no legal recourse for justice, if we break apart families and we break apart children with their parents, all which were staples of the slave trade as we practiced it in this nation, we have rejected personhood And that is anathema to God in Scripture. 
I'm reading Frederick Douglass's biography right now. Some of you know his story. Douglass was born a slave, and then he escaped, and then he eventually bought back his freedom, and he became a very powerfully outspoken abolitionist. He lived in the North, he traveled in the North, he spoke in the North, and as he did that, I'm reading in his biography that wherever he went in the North, he was often ridiculed, he was attacked, he was beaten, um, he nearly died on several occasions, all at the hands of northerners who were furious at his message that those who were born slaves were actually full people. And just reading that biography reminded me, as a northerner, that this deep-seated racial prejudice against Africans was not just a southern thing, it's an American thing. God hates prejudice. God hates prejudice. We read about that in Ephesians chapter 2, that in this glorious irony, he wants to take Gentiles and Jews, blacks and whites, slaves and free, and he wants to unite them as one body and Christ. And here's the kicker. When we get our redeemed bodies, as we talked about last week, we actually keep our race forever in heaven before God. Because he wants to show us once and for all the beauty of humanity joining arm in arm and worshiping him together. That's his plan. That's his glory. The third reason is that the Bible condemns abuse. We know that this is true. Physical, sexual Verbal abuse, they have no place in God's kingdom, not in a home, not in a business, not in a nation, and certainly not in a trade. You even saw Paul's warning to Christian masters in Ephesus. He says this in verse 9, Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. In other words, watch your mouth, masters. God hears every careless word. Do you think you are closer to God because you hold power in this relationship over another person? You aren't. You, whether you claim Christ or not, are going to answer for the abuses you perpetrate in this life. You will not hide behind your title. Even threats of abuse. If Paul had lived in our day, if he had experienced American slavery as we experienced it, this would be a very different section of a very different letter because the Bible outright condemns the slavery we practiced in America. I wanted to spend a good amount of time talking about the kind of slavery that Paul saw in his day. I do think it's important to understand what he saw and what he was referring to, but I don't want to do too much here. We know that when Paul is writing about this and he's thinking about this, he's thinking about a world in which there existed professional slaves. There were those who were 
doctors and skilled farmers or vine dressers or craftsmen. There were slaves who were in part of uh, the imperial family, those who were slaves of those who practiced uh, politics, who were senators, those who were slaves of prestigious families. And if you were that, then you actually held more prestige and power as a slave of a prestigious family than if you were free and not of a prestigious family. It was a very different world. People in Paul's day, they could have sold themselves into slavery to pay off their debts, and they could have earned money to buy themselves out of slavery. If you're interested in what slavery looked like in Paul's day and and what he's referring to, I highly commend to you a book. It's Murray Harris's Slave of Christ. And it's basically a biblical theology on what it means that we are a slave of Christ. And to do that, he walks through what Paul's understanding of slavery was before he began to use that language. But I'm afraid if we spent too much time there and we explained all about the Roman slave system, we would give the impression that when Paul looked around in his day and he saw the slave system as it was practiced he figured that it wasn't all that bad, and so instead of fighting for emancipation, Paul reinforced slavery in his day by telling slaves to obey their masters. And if we did that and thought that, that would be exactly how American slave owners would use Paul's words, including passages like this one, so many years later to justify the American slave system. That is misunderstanding what Paul is doing here. Paul has a goal. Paul has an agenda. Paul understands the system he was born into and the kingdom that he is serving. And he's got a very different strategy than we would have in 21st century America with our voting rights and our abilities to gather a crowd to stand against the system. Paul had none of that in his day. Paul was born into a godless Roman empire that was as powerful and far-reaching as the world had ever known. It was inhabited by 60 million people across nations and tongues, all knit together, all tied and tethered to the shared idea that Caesar is Lord and nobody else is. Anybody in the Roman Empire could practice their religion, could do what they felt led to do, as long as it didn't mess with the state. You can have your religion, just don't mess with what we're doing here. Because we've got a religion. It's the religion of the Roman Empire. And that actually sounds not unlike... America today, or any superpower that has ever existed, that it can tell its citizens, sure, you you do what you want. You believe what you want as long as it's personal and quiet and quaint and exists between just you and God. If you want to believe in one God or a million gods, that's fine. If you want to pray or burn incense, that's fine. If you want to gather together in groups like we're doing here, or you want to go off into the woods, that's fine. Just keep this one bedrock principle, keep it to yourself, keep it to your group, do not mess with what we are doing here as the state. Our family watched the movie Chariots of Fire 
a couple of weeks ago, and um, that's the story of Eric Little, who was an Olympian. He was an incredible runner, a devout Christian. He, he had the conviction that he couldn't run or practice on Sunday. That was his strict observance of the Sabbath, and lo and behold, his first Olympic trial was on a Sunday. And he said, I'm not going to do it. If that means I don't get to run in the Olympics, that's okay. I'm not going to do it. And there's this great scene where these, there's all these politicians sitting with Eric trying to understand what he's talking about. And finally, this like gruff, pear-shaped senator barks out to him, in my day, it was country first and God second. He would have fit perfectly with America today. That is the law of the superpower. And every one of Jesus' disciples were going to learn this the hard way. Every single one of them realized really quickly that though they were not breaking any overt laws under the Roman Empire, it would cost them their lives in martyrdom to the state. John was spared, but he was exiled by the state. So you got to understand that Paul's got a very different tactic in a very different world. Paul is trying to plant the seeds of the kingdom of God right in the heart of the kingdom of Rome. Jesus said that his kingdom is like the smallest of seeds. You hardly even notice it when it shows up in your life or in your community or your city or your nation. You don't even see it for what it is. But once that thing gets planted and it starts to grow, it will be the biggest of trees where the birds will find their respite. Christianity in Rome in the first century was the smallest of seeds. If you would have seen it, you would have been sure that it would not have existed in the second century. It was this pulsing underground resistance that was beginning to order its lives around the Lord Jesus at the expense of Lord Caesar. And Paul is going to, in his letters, preach a different kingdom in hopes that as it grew up, it would overshadow the present and powerful kingdom that existed in his day. Man, you see that all over the book of Ephesians. The church in Ephesus was this teeny, small, infinitesimal, smallest of seeds. Paul, when he's writing this letter, he's actually a prison in Rome. He's actually tasting the power of the state because he's under arrest. He's in Rome. He's actually chained to a Roman guard. It's not going to be too many years later until under the rule of Nero, he will be beheaded by Roman powers. If anybody understood the power of the nation at the time, it was Paul. And he writes to this tiny church that he's planted in a thriving city. It's a handful of families. They're meeting in someone's living room after work. Nobody gets the day Sunday off. And they're bent over this unlikely letter of Ephesians. And outside the Roman Empire is thriving, it's growing, it's earning, it's enforcing, it is infatuated with itself. But inside, you've got these few born-again believers. You've got these babies who are squawking 
You've got these wives who don't know what they're going to put on the dinner table that night. You've got these husbands who have been harsh with their wives. You've got these masters and slaves who are trying to work together in this new relationship of being born again. And they are ordering their lives around an entirely different kingdom. Paul says, line by line, Chapter 5, verse 21, I know Rome's kingdom demands that the poor defer to the rich, that the weak defer to the powerful, but that's not God's kingdom. We're not going to do this in this living room. We're not going to do that in this community. We are going to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. Chapter 5, verse 22, I know Rome's kingdom places men at the center of the household and wives and children kind of filter out from there and it is ruled with an iron fist, but that's not God's kingdom. That's not what we're doing here. A a wife, she joyfully and willingly submits to her husband's leadership and a husband lays down and sacrifices for his wife. Chapter 6, verse 1, I know Rome's kingdom practices abortion and infanticide and gives no legal recourse for children, fearful for their lives, but that's not God's kingdom. Children are always a gift. Children are always welcome, and our highest aim is to grow them up to know the king and his true kingdom. And then finally, chapter 6, verse 5, I know that Rome's kingdom buys and sells humans as slaves and it turns a blind eye to the abuses found there, but that's not God's kingdom. I know that you were born again, literally the people sitting here were born again in the middle of a system that they inherited and we're going to do something new here in God's kingdom. Everyone sitting here, you're a brother and a sister in Christ. Everyone sitting here, you will answer to God and the way you respond to each other. And I want you to treat each other as you are in God's presence. The kingdom of God has this brilliant way of grabbing whatever little kingdom you happen to be in right now and turning it completely on its head. God's kingdom doesn't share our kingdom's values. God's kingdom, it doesn't tiptoe around the little kingdom we're in today. God does not make apologies for the way that his kingdom advances. And if that's true, there is not a single Christian who can hide behind our title, our gender, our position, or our power play. God is your master. God is your father. God is your husband. It doesn't matter who you are. You are snapped up into the family of God, joining hands one with another. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are now, in God's kingdom, all one in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Let it be so, Lord Jesus, let it be so. Forgive us for hiding behind the little power that our personal kingdoms give us today and for the abuses that we find there. 
And let us be this kind of radically reoriented people around the king and his kingdom who see one another as brothers and sisters of Christ who lay down to serve one another out of that same reverence for Christ. Do that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.